you start making your way back to your seats. And as you do, I want to invite you <clears throat> to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. <clears throat> to John chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve uh, as <clears throat> one of the pastors here of Newbreed Church. There are four of us. I have the distinct honor of serving as the lead pastor. We are in the middle of a series, well, towards the beginning of a series through the book of John. And we're just kind of walking through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a series that we've entitled that you might or that you may believe. And so we come this morning to the end of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, and we're going to be looking uh, through verse 54. And so I know you just sat down, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word uh, one more time as we read John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. So here, hear what John writes. He says, after two days, he, that's Jesus, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and to heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said, and he departed. While he was still going down, his servant met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked him at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. And this morning, I want us to just consider this idea, faith in the unseen. Faith in the unseen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask for your grace that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Faith in the unseen. So his name is Andy Bechtelsheim. He was born in Germany in 1955 into a modest home. He's one of four children. He grew up in an isolated part of the country where his family had no television and didn't have a lot of, of means or money. Um, and they didn't have honestly, a lot of neighbors to interact with. And as a result, he began to experiment with electronics. He became really good at electronics. Well, fast forward a few years. At the age of 16, he designed an industrial controller for a local company's computer system. And this design, what they would pay for it, would actually fund his education. 
So he went to university, began to study engineering, computer engineering, and while in school designed a powerful computer with, at the time, a novel built-in networking system. Bechtelsheim founded his own company after he graduated from engineering school, and he was in many ways a pioneer when it comes to early computing. And while he began to operate a successful business, it was actually one decision he made that ultimately took him from his humble beginnings to become one of the most wealthy people in the world. So in September of 1988, or I'm sorry, of 1998, Bechtelsheim became one of the two first investors in this little company called Google. He invested $100,000 to help this company get off the ground. Needless to say, Bechtelsheim made a little bit of money off of that investment. Currently, he is said to be worth, he's said to be worth $10.7 billion. Bechtelsheim was recently interviewed and was asked about his de- decision to invest in this company called Google. And what he said was that he saw the potential of creating a system where people could search for information about anything. It didn't exist yet, but he believed that it could. So in other words, Bechtelsheim had faith. He believed in what could be, therefore he decided to act now, hoping to see what he believed to be true come to fruition in the future. Church, in a very real sense, that is a lighter, lesser, and lower example of what we are called to do every day as Christians. You've heard me use this quote from St. Augustine, but I love this quote. Put it up for you there. It says that faith is to believe what you do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Faith is to believe what you do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. See, now more than when it comes to investments or computers companies, faith is, sal- is, faith is foundational for our salvation. That's why Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, For you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. Or you could look at the hall of faith, right, in Hebrews 11, which reminds us in verse 1, the very beginning, communicates now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not yet seen. Faith is essential to our spiritual journeys. But I think if some of us are honest this morning, we actually prefer a faithless faith. See, we want a faith where everything is explained. A faith where every situational outcome is understood beforehand. We want a faith proven by what we see rather than a faith that is content with the unseen. Often we want a faithless faith. But what John communicates in our text this morning is a powerful and beautiful example of faith in the unseen. In a very real sense, he's explaining further and giving a visual picture of the purpose of the entire book. Remember, John tells us why he's writing this gospel in John 20, verse 31. It says, but these are are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book. John's saying, I just want you to see Jesus. 
I want you to believe in him and by believing in him that you would have life in his name. He is revealing that belief entails a real faith and it will demand a faith in what is often unseen. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this text and show you what I believe to be an incredible picture of faith in the unseen. So let me give you a little bit of context here. We're coming to the end of chapter 4. And as chapter 4 ends, it actually brings a section of the book of John to a close. It's, Jesus is coming full circle, if you will. He began his ministry in John chapter 2 in Cana. And chapter 4 verse 46 tells us that he went again, went again to Cana of Galilee. And so Jesus has come full circle. And this section in John's gospel has focused on Jesus' ministry centered around the Passover festival. A key theme throughout this section has obviously been believing Jesus to be the Messiah. Right? So after Jesus turned water into wine, John 2.11 tells us his disciples believed in him. After Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2.23 and 24, it tells us while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we're reminded in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John the Baptist testifies in John 3 verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And then even last week with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, we saw that not only did she believe in Jesus, but John 4.39, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman had testified when she said, he told me everything I ever did. Jesus stays with them for two days. And then in John 4.41, we see many more believe because of what he said. So as this section comes to a close, you once again are encountering this idea of belief. But I also want you to note some of the characters we've encountered, encountered in this section so far. We meet Nicodemus, one of the religious elites, highly respected, knowledgeable in things of the law, one who you would think has this religious thing figured out. He was at the top of the society. But then we met the Samaritan woman, an outcast in her own town, considered to be a half-breed by the Jews. This woman would have been the bottom of society. And here in our text this morning, we meet a royal official, one with all the luxuries and perks of his noble station. Now, there's something to note about these characters. They're positioned to teach us a very significant truth that it doesn't matter if you are a religious person. It doesn't matter if you are shunned by society. It doesn't matter if you have all the goods the world can offer. What you need more than anything is an encounter with Jesus. There are some questions that only Jesus can answer. There is some hope that only Jesus can provide. There is some healing that only Jesus can offer. And it doesn't matter what your position, station, or financial situation. You and I, we all need Jesus. But even more, these characters are positioned to teach us that Jesus is available to everybody. Like, let, me, let me say it like this. The gospel that we proclaim ought to be proclaimed to everybody. 
because we never know who it is who will respond to Jesus. And I know, believe me, I know, because I've felt it myself, there is a temptation to think that person would never respond to Jesus. There is no way Jesus can save them. But if we learn anything from the life and ministry of Jesus, if we learn anything from Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, with Jesus casting out demons, if we learn anything from Jesus' encounter with the thief on the cross, it's that as long as there is breath in someone's body, you never know what could happen when they meet Jesus. John's not writing this gospel because he believes no one will believe. John is convinced of something that we are so quick to forget that one encounter with Jesus can change the course of someone's eternity. But what does it all require? It requires faith. Let me get back to my text. I almost preached a different sermon. So in our text this morning, this closing section of, John's go- of, of this part of John's gospel that began with the wedding at Cana, there are some connections that we see. We see some connections between the story of the royal official and the wedding at Cana. When Jesus turned water into wine, you may have noticed as we read the story, because I know y'all are so theologically astute, so I know you picked up on it, but this story follows the exact same pattern as the wedding at Cana, doesn't it? They both occur on the third day. A problem is presented to Jesus. Jesus initially confronts the one bringing the problem. The person then responds in faith. Jesus gives a command that is then obeyed. The meet is net, uh, met. The need is met. And the meeting of the need leads to more belief. So that's our text in a nutshell. Thanks for coming. Have a great Sunday. That's, that's it. Now, what I want to do, though, is I want to flesh that out a little bit and see a few truths that we see regarding faith in the unseen. And my prayer, honestly, this morning is that as we examine this faith, that it would challenge us to grow a deeper faith in what is unseen. But let me begin where John begins, because before we actually see the example from the royal official of a faith in the unseen, Jesus, John actually records for us Jesus' warning. So first thing that we see is a warning. And here's the warning. John warns against wanting Jesus for the wrong reasons. Wanting Jesus for the wrong reasons. Look again at verses 43 through 45. It says, after two days, he left for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they also had gone to the festival. So these verses offer somewhat of a transition, right? Jesus has been in Samaria, and and these verses offer a transition as he he moves back to Cana. Remember, Jesus stayed with the Samaritans for two days, and now on the third day, he heads back to Cana in Galilee. But what John points out is interesting. He says in verse 44, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. So in essence, Jesus is saying, I have no honor here where I am. Because Jesus is an Israelite. That's his country. He was from Nazareth, Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee. Galilee is in Israel. So it would appear that this statement is predicting the type of welcome that Jesus is anticipating as he goes into Galilee. But then we read this in verse 44. Or I'm sorry, in verse 45. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans, Galileans welcomed him. So right off the bat, the question could be asked, was Jesus wrong? Like, why would he say that there's no honor when it seems that the people 
are welcoming him and they're recognizing him. It doesn't seem hostile. Well, keep reading. There's some clues in that verse. So when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Here it is, because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they also had gone to the festival. So John is explaining something to us. He's revealing that just because Jesus was welcomed, it doesn't mean that he was honored. And the reason they welcomed him was because of what Jesus had done, not because of who he truly was. This reminds us of some statements that we've already seen in John, right? John 1 verse 11, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Or John 2, 23 through 24, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name, even when, believed in his name, sorry, when they saw the signs that he was doing, Jesus, however, did not entrust himself to them. So once again, Jesus is not honored in his hometown. Not that he's not welcomed. He's absolutely welcomed. He's not honored. Because the only worth they attributed to Jesus was what he could do for them. Here's the reason this is so significant, church. You and I, and it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for decades, you and I have to fight the temptation to only see the worth of Jesus in what he can do for us. Now listen to me. I'm not saying that we don't praise him for what he can do. We absolutely do. We praise him for his provision. We praise him for his healing. We praise him for his deliverance. We praise him for salvation. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that the honor that is due Jesus is not ultimately rooted in what he does. It's rooted in who he is. I mean, John 1, 14, he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus, the worth of Jesus is found in who he is. He is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. He is God in flesh. He is the promise of God fulfilled. He is grace and truth. Jesus deserves honor simply because Jesus is Jesus. And all the blessings we celebrate from him exist because Jesus is who he says he is. Here's why this matters when it comes to faith. If you and I aren't careful, we can develop a faith in what is seen instead of what is unseen. We'll see it in a second, but that's ultimately Jesus' issue with the people who welcome him, right? Verse 48, he says to them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's not praising them there. He's challenging them. So the progression for them went, show us what you can do, and then we will honor you. But John's arguing that's an insufficient honor because what we'll see with the royal official in just a moment is the reverse, a faith that honors Jesus without seeing. So let me make it as plain as I can. The faith the Bible calls us to is a faith that sees the giver as more precious than the gifts, that believes, trusts, and honors Jesus even when some of your prayers are answered with a no. Listen to me, church, there is a difference between having welcoming feelings about Jesus and having faith in Jesus. And one of the ways that you can tell if you want Jesus for the wrong reasons is to examine your worship. Do you still see Jesus as good when everything else is going wrong? Do you still see Jesus as good when you are asking for good things and he still says no? 
Do you still see Jesus as good when he chooses not to heal, not to change your circumstances, not to deliver you from the season that you are in? Is your song of praise just as strong? Because if we want Jesus because he's Jesus, then our circumstances won't define our worship. But if our worship is contingent on our circumstances, we may be pursuing Jesus for the wrong reasons. Jesus sets the stage for us in verses 43 through 45 regarding a faith based on what is seen by giving this warning. But then in the account of the royal official, we see a powerful testimony of the opposite. A faith not based purely on what Jesus can do, but a faith that maintains even when the sign is absent. So what I want to do is, I, with the time that I have left, I want to look at this royal official, and I want to try to pull out a couple marks of genuine faith in what is unseen that we see in the character of the royal official. I think that this official has a powerful testimony of faith. So there are a few things I want you to note about a genuine faith in the unseen. Here's the first thing. A genuine faith in the unseen is a persistent faith. It's a persistent faith. Look at verses 46 through 49. It says, he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. So there's... This man, this royal official, and he travels to see Jesus. He's coming from Capernaum to Cana and Galilee. It's about a 17 to 20 mile trip. He's heard some things about him. We don't know exactly what. John doesn't tell us. But he knows enough that when he hears that Jesus is there, he thinks, I should go get him. So we don't know what he heard. Maybe this guy heard some of the miracles that Jesus has done. Maybe somebody told him about what happened when Jesus was baptized, how the heavens opened and the Spirit descended and the voice of God rang out. We don't know. But, but there was something in him that just believed if he got to Jesus, maybe Jesus could heal his son. And so he approaches and he asks Jesus to come with him to Capernaum. So he's saying, hey, Jesus, come travel this 20 miles with me, please, and heal my son. Now, this makes sense, right? Because in the ancient world, miracles and acts of power were linked to the presence of the miracle worker. So in other words, it's unheard of for someone to say from 20 miles away, go, your son will live, and they actually live. Because the power was tied to the presence of the person. Now, Jesus' response when the father comes is similar to the wedding at Cana. It's initially one of challenge. Do you remember back to the wedding of Cana? Jesus, the wine has run out. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Jesus, heal my son. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, I want you to notice, though, the father's response in verse 49. So after Jesus responds with this challenge, he says, Sir, the official said to him, come down before my son dies. You can almost feel the desperation, can't you? Please, my boy is about to die. Again, in some sense, it's the exact same situation as the wedding. And at first glance, right, it seems odd, just like it did at the wedding, that Jesus would challenge the idea of healing if he's going to go ahead and do it anyway, right? Remember, that was kind of the problem we looked at with the wedding at Cana. Why say, what does this have to do with me if you're going to go ahead and do a miracle anyway? 
right? Why challenge him on wanting a sign of wanting healing if you're going to do the healing anyway? But just like the story of Mary and Jesus in John chapter 2, I'm going to say the same thing again. I just have to believe that Jesus was serious when he challenges the people on their fake faith. But yet he acts nonetheless. And once again, I'm also convinced that there are some things Jesus doesn't intend to do, but he will do when you ask in faith. And again, I think I'm on good exegetical ground here because Jesus says in Matthew 21, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. There's something about the honest faith of Jesus' people that Jesus just won't deny. Now listen, I'm not saying he'll do whatever you want if you believe hard enough. I'm just saying the Bible seems to say that God pays attention when his people ask for things in, in faith. But don't miss this. It is the persistence of this father that reveals his faith. A mark of genuine faith is a faith that is persistent. You know, this is how I know. I mean, it's one of the ways. This is how I know God's just a better father than I am. Because I get so annoyed. Are they here? All right, I get so annoyed when my children ask me the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. Some of y'all, some of you parents, that's the first time you've ever said amen in church, ever, right there. It will wear you out. Even when they're asking for good things. Dad, can I get dinner? They got to eat? Give me 15 minutes. 15 seconds later, Dad, can I get something to eat? Give me 14 minutes. Dad, can I get something? You, you get, it, it wears on me. This is how I know God's a better father than me. Because he delights in it. Why else would he invite us to pray without ceasing and make our requests known before him? God delights in the persistent faith of his children. And listen to me, I hope that this is encouraging to some people in this room because I just have to believe that there are some people in this room right now like me who have been praying for some of the same thing for years on end and God just hasn't done it. Let me remind you though that God delights in those prayers because it reveals a real faith in him. It's not dangerous to pray the same things over and over and over and over. It's dangerous when we stop. Because the persistent prayers re reveal a real faith. So this father is persistent and responds. He's persistent and Jesus responds. Sir, please, my boy is about to die. So we see one of the marks of his faith is that it's a persistent faith. But, but another mark of his faith, right, is it's a, it's a faith that moves without seeing. So he's persistent, but he also has a faith in the unseen that moves without seeing. I mean, look again at verse 50. Go. All right, so, so he says, sir, please come with me because my boy is about to die. And Jesus looks at him and he says, go. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Now, it's important to note here that when Jesus says go, that word written there in the Greek is an imperative. Jesus is actually giving him a command to follow. And he's calling the man to be obedient based on one thing and one thing alone. 
the word of his testimony. Your son will live. So the father in this moment has one of two options. He can believe the testimony of God and be obedient or continue to demand Jesus meet the father on the father's terms. But what does he do? The man believed what Jesus said to him and he departed. I cannot underestimate the weight of this verse. Jesus gave him no sign. He had no evidence whatsoever to support Jesus' claim that his son would live. He had no way of knowing if he left and got back to his son and his son wasn't well, he had no idea if he could ever find Jesus again. The man simply believed the testimony of Jesus. That if Jesus says my son will live, then he will live. And church, faith in the unseen will demand at times that we're obedient even when we can't see how, it, how it's all going to play out. Resting solely on the testimony of Jesus. That if Jesus says he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is near even when we don't feel it. That if Jesus says not death or life nor depth nor height nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, then we are safe in his arms. That if Jesus says that he is working for my good, then even the evil of my enemy that I'm experiencing right now will be redeemed for good. That if Jesus says he gives good gifts, then if his answer is no to my prayer, it's ultimately for my good. Faith requires walking in obedience even when we don't know how all the details will play out. And again, I think if we're honest this morning, many of us move with facts more than we move with faith. You don't have to admit it. I'm preaching to myself right now. I'm one of those guys, I like the T's crossed. I like the I's dotted. I like to know how this thing's going to play out. And I can move more based on facts than I can trusting in faith in my God who has spoken. You know, when you think about it, most of the heroes listed in Hebrews 11, that's the hall of faith in the Bible, they had a faith that demanded that they act before they ever saw the hand of God move. Abraham had to leave his homeland before God ever told him where he was going. Noah had to build an ark before he ever felt a drop of rain. Elijah had to challenge the prophets of Baal before he ever actually saw the fire of God fall from heaven. All they had was the testimony of God but it was good enough to make them move. Wow. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that sometimes your faith will require walking in obedience before God even lets you know where you're going. Yeah. But this, by definition, is a faith in the unseen. Yeah. But there's more we see with this royal official. Not only, a genuine faith, not only that a genuine faith in the unseen is a, per, a, a persistent faith, not only... Is it a faith that will at times require moving without seeing? Here's the third mark of the genuine faith I want you to see. It's a growing faith. A genuine faith in the unseen is a growing faith. Look at verse 43, right? So Jesus heals his son. So we're going to come back to all the healing. I'm not skipping over the good part. Trust me. I just needed an ending to my sermon. So I got to come back to that. <laughs> Jesus heals his son before he makes it back to the family. And so the father asks one of the servants who runs out to meet him, hey, what happened? A servant tells him when his son was healed. And then verse 53 says, the father realized 
This was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. Here it is. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now it's interesting watching commentators. Sometimes commentators are really helpful. Sometimes they're just a hot mess. But it was interesting reading the commentators talk about the two usages of belief in this text. Right? Because they look at this and they make, you, make the argument that it wasn't until right here in verse 53 when the man truly had faith in Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah. And so when it says that he believed along with his family, that's when he had saving faith. And then they say that the statement in verse 50 was not a belief in Jesus, but just a belief in what Jesus was telling him. They somehow separate those two. I don't think it's helpful to look at, that, at it that way. You aren't going to believe the words of Jesus unless you believe in Jesus. But what I think we see happening here is what I think so many of us have experienced in our own life. So it's not hard theologically to explain. Belief or faith is never stagnant. It's either growing or it's decreasing, but it's never standing still. And what I think we're seeing is a faith that is growing in real time. Because the father trusted Jesus. When Jesus didn't fail, he believed some more. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because some of you have had some situations in your life where all you had was Jesus. Some of you have been in some mess that only Jesus could get you out of. Some of you have had some problems that only Jesus could deliver you from. And when you placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus came through. And what did it produce? Not less faith in him, more faith in him. And listen to me, when we, when we talk about a faith in the unseen, I want you to get this. We're not talking about a blind faith. I actually hate the statement blind faith. Jesus does not call you to live in blind faith. Faith in the unseen grows based on what we have seen. How is it that we can trust in the goodness of God for tomorrow? Because we've seen it today. How is it that we can trust in the faithfulness of God in the future? Because he's always been faithful in the past. How do we know our faith in the unseen is not wasted? Because God has never failed us yet. What we are seeing with the Father is that he places a faith in Jesus. Jesus comes through and it results in more faith. It's not a blind faith. Yeah, he's trusting in the unseen, or he's, he's having faith in, in the unseen, but he's been given evidence to look at to say, man, this Jesus doesn't seem to miss the mark. Yeah. And again, some of you know it to be true because the only reason your faith has grown is because Jesus has never failed you yet. Amen. Our faith as believers, if we are holding fast to Christ, <laughs> will be a faith that is growing because Jesus never fails from day to day. And that should give us a little bit more confidence as we move throughout the course of this life. When Jesus comes through, it gives you a little more confidence that he will come through again. But notice it's not just growing in him. It's growing in others as well. Did you catch that? It's not only that he believed but that his family believed as well. You see, when we have seen the faithfulness of Jesus, not only should it change our lives, but it should spill over into the lives of those around us. If Jesus has been this good to us, if he has been this faithful to us, if he has been this consistent, this kind, this gracious, this merciful, how in the world does it not spill out of us and his unseen faith catch this led to more unseen faith because nobody in his family saw Jesus none of them heard the testimony 
They too were placing their faith in the unseen. But Jesus had given them enough evidence that he was who he says he is and he can do what he says that he will do. So let me, let me try to tie a bow on this. And I'll just be honest, I didn't really know exactly how to tie a bow on this. I told a couple people about this, how to kind of bring this to a close. Because we see these marks of a persistent faith. But then the question becomes, why bother? Why bother with this? Why place our faith in the unseen? Why not just live based off what we can see? Well, here's the best I got. I think there's a hope when we have a faith that is unseen. Here's the hope. Faith in the unseen will allow us to see what we have believed. So let's go back to the story in verse 51 through 54. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. So let's again consider that quote from St. Augustine that I mentioned at the beginning. Faith is to believe what you do not see. And the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Faithfully trusting Jesus with the unseen will result in us seeing our faith become sight. I want to be clear, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that if, you're, if you have faith in Jesus, you'll have everything you ask for in this life come to fruition. I'm not saying that. Maybe that will be true of you. If that's the case, pray for me, because it's not true of me. But what I am saying is that when you have faith in Jesus, that indeed He is God in flesh, that when our sin separated us from God, that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we should have lived, but to die the death that we deserve to die. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, having conquered sin, death, and the grave. And through Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father through faith and repentance. When we have faith in Jesus, that he is the greatest treasure, the reward of our faith is we will get to see him face to face. The reward is that one day we will see the one in whom we have placed our faith. God has always been faithful like that. There are a couple of stories that popped into my mind. One of the stories I love in the scripture, I absolutely love it, is the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story? So Peter, James, John, it's those three, right? I'm legit asking, it's those three, right? Okay, Peter, thank you, brother. Peter, James, and John go, go up the mountain with Jesus. While they're on the mountain, Jesus is transfixed. They see his glory, but then two people show up, Elijah and Moses. And I think sometimes we miss the significance of it being those two. Because Moses had faith that he would see the full deliverance of God, but he never made it to the promised land. Elijah longed to see the power of God made known among the nations, but he never saw it happen in his life. And so when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, why does God send those two? 
so that they could see the thing in which they had believed. The deliverance of God in full and the power of God for all the nations. Take, take Simeon. Take Simeon. God says you will not die until you see the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. And as he blesses Mary and Joseph, he says, my eyes have seen the Christ. He had faith and he saw the thing in which he had believed. And church, I'm trying to tell you that when you place your faith in Jesus, the hope that you have is that one day, Though he is unseen now, you will see him face to face. And in that moment, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more sin and no more death and no more pain and no more struggle. And we will rejoice with our hope for all of eternity. Placing your faith in the unseen is hard, but it's worth it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for this testimony of faith in the unseen. God, the royal official is not the only one who has received a testimony from you. That's the reason that John wrote this gospel was to offer a testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that we might believe and have eternal life. And so God, my simple prayer this morning is this. Like the Father in the book of Mark, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.